Section 24 of the Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M.P. Hill. Section 24. Confession and the People. Some Common Accusations. Confession, at least private confession, is an invention of the priests. It is the secret force by which the Roman Catholic Church enslaves the consciences of the people. One of the worst features of auricular confession is the practice of questioning penitents about their sins. The answer. Anyone who either utters or accepts the above statement about the origin of the confessional would be cured of his error by a slight taste of a confessor's experience. So far as the interests of the priests were concerned, it would have been the height of folly in them to have invented confession. Let us see what is involved in the supposed invention of the priests. To have to sit in a narrow box, hour after hour, often in a stifling atmosphere, listening to story after story of spiritual misery, to be ever in readiness, night and day, to answer a call to the sick chamber, where not unfrequently one must expose himself to danger of infection, to be committed to the obligation of secrecy, by which one may forfeit all right of self-defense, there have been many cases in which priests have incurred the severest penalties by a refusal to betray the secrets of the confessional, these are only a fraction of the pains and discomforts and dangers brought upon themselves by the priests in their supposed invention of sacramental confession. Let us realize all this, and then ask ourselves whether the game was worth the candle. An invention of the priests. When or where was confession invented? Has it not been in use in the church from the earliest ages? See, confession divinely instituted. That it was an invention of the priests was not the persuasion of some of the early reformers. Confession has been retained in Lutheranism, and the absolution of the priest has a place to this day in Anglican formularies, although it stands for very little in the practice of the Anglican Church, except in high church circles. Does not the accusation against the priest sound like a party sibboleth? And then the fell motive of the invention, the enslaving of the people. Who or what can these slave drivers be? Whence are the priests recruited? Do they form a caste? Or is it a family interest which they are serving, and with a hereditary family spirit and policy? Is it not preeminently true that the priests are of the people? No system of enslavement could last even half a century if the enslavers were entirely recruited from the ranks of the enslaved. If by enslaving the people is meant getting a hold upon the conscience which tends to strengthen the Catholic cause and perpetuate the Catholic religion, then, admitting for the sake of argument that confession operates toward that end, which it does to some extent, the question now turns upon the merits of the Catholic religion. If it teaches the truth, the mind is not enslaved. The truth shall make you free. If it teaches error, the mind is indeed subjected to the servitude of error. But how many of those who brand Catholic teaching as error and as a species of enslavement have taken the trouble to inform themselves of what genuine Catholic teaching is? On the other hand, who better than the Catholics can give a reason for the faith that is in them? If confession is an enslavement, is it not strange that in the course of each year tens of thousands in English-speaking countries show themselves, by their return to the faith of their fathers, decidedly enamored of the state of slavery? Neither are Catholics enslaved, nor do they feel they are enslaved. A sinner who comes to his confessor under the galling yoke of sin steps forth from the confessional with a delicious sense of breathing the air of freedom. Peace and a sense of renewed hope and strength are the invariable feeling of those who have laid down their burden at the feet of God's representative and have come away with a moral assurance of reconciliation with their maker. The feeling of a Catholic after confessing has not altogether escaped the notice of our Protestant friends. Longfellow, in his Evangeline, after describing the natural graces of the Acadian peasant girl, adds, 
but a celestial brightness, a more ethereal beauty, shone on her face and encircled her form, when, after confession, homeward serenely she walked with God's benediction upon her. When she had passed, it seemed like the ceasing of exquisite music. Goethe, who is universally known as a poet, but who is no less distinguished as a thinker, and as a man who possessed a large acquaintance with human life, has some apposite remarks on the subject of the confessional. They are reported by Henry Boss the Younger, who tells us in a letter on Goethe written in February 1805, after an illness, he soon resumed his habit of having something read to him. I brought him Luther's table talk and read some of it to him. He listened with interest for a full hour. He here quotes some invectives of Goethe against Luther, which do not concern us just here, after which he continues. This led up to a fine discourse on the comparative advantages of Catholicism and Protestantism. I agree with him in his strictures upon the Protestant religion, for placing too heavy a load on the shoulders of the individual man. Formerly, a burden might be taken off the conscience by the help of others, but now the soul must endure it, and endure it alone, and it has not strength of itself to restore equilibrium to its powers. Auricular confession should never have been taken away from men. Goeth, as a young man, had had some experience of a Lutheran confessional, which he had found anything but a haven of peace. We shall cite a few sentences from his Dictum und Vorheit on the subject of particularizing in one's accusation in the confessional, premising that Catholics are obliged to confess specifically all their grievous sins, that is to say, sins by which they would forfeit their eternal salvation. We were taught, he says, that we were much better than the Catholics for this very reason, that we were not obliged to acknowledge anything in particular in the confessional, nay, that this would not be at all proper even if we wished to do it. This last did not seem right to me, for I have had the strangest religious doubts, which I would readily have had cleared up on such an occasion. Now, as this was not to be done, I composed a confession for myself, which, while it well expressed my state of mind, was to confess to an intelligent man, in general terms, that which I was forbidden to tell him in detail. But when I entered the old choir of the Barefoot Friars, when I approached the strange lattice closets in which the reverend gentleman used to be found for that purpose, when the sexton opened the door for me, when I now saw myself shut up in the narrow place, all the light of my mind and heart was extinguished at once. The well-conned confession speech would not cross my lips. I opened in my embarrassment the book which I had in hand, and read from it the first short form I saw, which was so general that anybody might have spoken it with quite safe a conscience. I received absolution, and withdrew neither warm nor cold, went the next day with my parents to the table of the Lord, and for a few days behaved myself as was becoming after so holy an act. English Translation 1, page 248. He then goes on to describe a habitual state of trouble and doubt from which any prudent and experienced priest might have relieved him, but which as a fact led him to abandon the church altogether. There is a small need of pointing the moral, which will here suggest itself to many of our readers. Another eminent Protestant, Leibniz, footnote. Leibniz, born 1646 at Leipzig, died 1716, will perhaps be a puzzle to the general reader if his habitual attitude toward Catholicism is not explained. He labored strenuously to bring about a reconciliation between Rome and the Reformed churches, and in many parts of his writings he expresses distinctively Catholic views on the most important questions. His Systema, from which we shall quote occasionally, was his genuine production, but it was not published till about a century after his death. It is a thoroughly Catholic work, so much so that Protestants have doubted his sincerity, or have regarded the book as an attempt by an able pleader, who could argue the two sides of a case, to make out a case for Catholicism, though still siding with Protestantism. But the antecedents of the writer make it highly probable that the Systema is the natural culmination of the writer's well-known Catholic tendencies. In the chapters from which we shall quote, there is not the smallest trace of the special pleader. In any case, his arguments have an intrinsic value, quite apart from his personal history. 
Famous as a philosopher, a jurist, and a theologian, discourses in his Sestima Theologicum on confession in a strain which might easily be mistaken for a chapter from Bellarmine. Assuredly, he says, it is a great mercy on the part of God that he has given to his church the power of remitting and retaining sins, which she exercises through her priests, whose ministry cannot be despised without grievous sin. Nor can it be denied that this is an ordinance in every respect worthy of divine wisdom, and if there be in the Christian religion anything admirable and deserving of praise, assuredly it is this institution which won the admiration even of the people of China and Japan. For by the necessity of confessing, many, especially those who are not yet hardened, are deterred from sin, and to those who have actually fallen it affords great consolation, in so much that I regard a pious, grave, and prudent confessor as a great instrument of God for the salvation of souls." For his counsel assists us in governing our passions, in discovering our vices, in avoiding occasions of sin, in making restitution, in repairing injuries, in dissipating doubts, in overcoming despondency, and, in fine, in removing or mitigating all the ills of the soul. And if in the ordinary concerns of life there is scarce anything more precious than a faithful friend, what must it be to have a friend who is bound, even by the inviolable obligation of a divine sacrament, to hold faith with us and assist us in our need? And although of old, while the fervor of piety was greater than it is now, public confession and penance were in use among Christians, nevertheless, in consideration of our weakness, it has pleased God to make known to the faithful, through the church, the sufficiency of a private confession made to a priest, and in this communication the seal of silence is imposed, in order that the confession thus made to God may be placed more completely beyond the reach of human respect. English translation by Dr. Russell, page 135. The questioning of penitence has been no less unfairly represented by our critics than other aspects of confession. As a matter of fact, there is very little questioning of the ordinary penitent. Ill-disposed or ill-prepared penitents are questioned in order that the true states of their souls may be ascertained and proper direction given them. But over-curious or dangerous questioning is neither customary nor permitted. In the entire preparatory training of a priest, special care is taken to cultivate him in the habits of prudence and reserve in the performance of so delicate a task as directing the human conscience. End of section 24. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.